in search of. Churches to try to attend. Non-traditional preferred. No Baptist churches. No old school hymns. No crazy preachers yelling and acting like they're jacked on drugs. I would like a church that focuses on positivity and love. Being the best person possible and aligning your intentions with the beauty and love that God is. If your church's sermons focus on humanity's sinful nature, the devil, obeying everything in the Bible without considering it closely, your church does not accept people with piercings and tattoos, the LGBTQ community, and other non-traditional lifestyles, please don't even comment. I'm just trying to find a place of worship and fellowship that aligns with my beliefs and values. I believe in God, but I believe the Bible to be one of many spiritual books that helps us or helps guide us to God using stories and metaphors. If you think you attend a progressive church that would embrace me, please share their name and location with me. Heart, I'm willing to drive up to an hour. I came from Charlotte recently. I really enjoyed attending both elevation and spiritual centers with a new age feel that encouraged meditation. Now, I've told some of you about this, this recent post on Wilkes County Information Facebook page. Here we have a person who is very clearly determined what they want. They're, they're detailed, they're articulate, here's what we don't want, here's what we do want. And they ask for suggestions, and then in the comments, people begin to name churches that they believe, I, I'm assuming, will be able to offer this person what they want. Celebration Church, Elevation Church, Winston, Unified City Church, Life Point Church, The Foundation Church, New Beginnings, United Methodist Church, no surprise there, The Gathering Grace Kingdom Life Ministries, watch out for any group that won't call themselves church. The Father's House, Faith Christian Assembly, and there, there were others. Now whether or not these churches actually meet the requirements of the inquirer, I don't know because I've not been there. But I would imagine that that list could be multiplied by just about every county in our little state with the names of so-called churches that have made it their aim to... Give unregenerate people what they want. They want to meet people where they are and create an atmosphere of love and connect people together and help people make life-changing connections. The problem is, first, Jesus. It says in John 4, 23, that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For, and notice that word, for, here's the reason why those worshipers are going to worship that way. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. In other words, God seeks worshipers who worship His way, not according to their thoughts and their ways, not according to their self-contrived mission statements or vision statements or purpose statements. That's not how Christianity works. And it's not a new thing. We're not the first to notice this thing in our day. The, the visible church is being prostituted, pimped out by self-help gurus and businessmen. That's where you know, purpose statements, vision statements, missions, that's, a, that's business. Businessmen whose job it is to sell a product to people who are not really interested in the product. Now, good advertising seeks to convince the consumer that they do need the product. The problem is now people have come into the visible church and are taking the liberty of not even trying to convince the consumer that they need the product, just mold and shape the product to fit whatever the consumer wants. Just change it. And as I thought about this, I looked through my office and I saw the, the can of chock full of nuts coffee. For years I thought, I bet that's really good coffee. Just the, 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 the picture of a, a coffee bean with some sort of nutty flavor, maybe it's hazelnut, maybe it's not... I always thought that this would be really good coffee. It's really just regular coffee. And if you read on the back of the can, the story is they started selling nuts. Then they started selling nuts and coffee. And then they just stopped selling nuts and kept selling coffee. 
and they just kept the name chock full of nuts. It does, they don't do nuts anymore. The reason is, I would assume, because they didn't have a passion for the product. They had a passion for the profit. Whatever sells, that's what we're going to sell it. We'll leave the same name, but we'll, whatever sells, that's what we're selling. And that's exactly what these churches in our day are doing. And again, it's not new. This is exactly what was happening in Sardis. Now, I want to take this letter and break it up into even smaller pieces than the verses themselves. Break it apart and, and match up several different portions to get a clear picture of the separate parts. But I think you'll be able to see what, what is the main thrust. I've got four main headings and they all have C words. The first that I want you to see is Christ's word of criticism to this church. His word of criticism. Unlike the previous letters that we've studied, there's nothing commendable that he addresses from the outset in this church. He doesn't start with what they're doing right. He begins with their errors. Their errors are threefold and the, the criticism is threefold. Verse 1b, the end of verse 1, he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And then at the end of verse 2, he says, I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The first thing that we see that is wrong with this church, according to the criticism of Christ, is that they had the reputation of being alive. The word is literally name. And we would say this, someone has made a name for themselves. And what we mean is they, they worked to build up their reputation. And reputation is a generally or broadly held opinion about someone or something. So there was a generally held, broadly held opinion that the church in Sardis was alive. Now who was it that had this opinion about the church in Sardis? We might ask, well, how is this a bad thing if they had the reputation of being alive? Well, it wasn't the church themselves. Your reputation is not what, uh, not what you think about yourself. It, we're going to see it's not Christ who had this, this belief about them. It was the outsiders. The people of their community gave them this reputation. It was generally held that the church in Sardis was a living church. Now, again, why is that bad? Well, Sardis, as we saw several weeks ago, was not any more Christianized than any of the other cities in Asia Minor. Sardis was a, a bustling city of great economic importance, but remember their worship centered around, uh, amongst other gods, the worship of the goddess Sibylle. Remember they had these, uh, these festivals where they, the, the priests would uh, work themselves up into what one man called an orgiastic frenzy and then, then publicly, ritually castrate themselves, shrieking and howling like animals. This was how they worshipped this goddess. The people, this the commentator called the city uh, deeply, uh, utterly debased and deeply degraded. So those people felt like Sardis was a, a pretty good church. They held the opinion that this was a living church, a healthy, vibrant, growing congregation. Now, a reputation is only as good as the opinion, or the, those who are holding this opinion. A church, when it has a good reputation amongst morally debased pagans, that's not good. That's a bad thing. So they have this reputation of being alive in this pagan city. But secondly, there's also the reality that they were actually dead. According to Christ, he says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, biblically speaking, there are three ways to be dead. You can be physically dead, spiritually dead, or eternally dead. That would be the second death of eternal torment. Now, I think we can rule out physical death. They're not just a bunch of dead bodies laying in a, in a building. I think we can rule out eternal death because they're actually still alive. When he says you're dead, he's talking about spiritual death, which, remember, means you're cut off from the life of God. So considered as a congregation, as a singular ecclesiastical unit, this congregation was severed from the life of God. They were dead. And then we see the result of this spiritual death at the end of verse 2, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The word complete means full or fulfilled or accomplished. So the result of their being spiritually dead was that they had not accomplished 
what God gave them to do. Their work was incomplete. In, in reality, they could not accomplish what was given them to do because they were dead. Now think about it. They have the reputation of being alive. So it's not like they weren't doing anything. It wasn't like there were no cars in the parking lot. It wasn't like their, their worship services were boring. There was nothing happening according to Christ. Nothing happening of any spiritual good. They were doing whatever they had been doing for a while and the people in their community were impressed with what they were doing. The problem is it doesn't matter what men, especially carnal men, think about your church. Notice he says, I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. It's not a church's reputation before men that matters. It's what God thinks about a church that matters. Now, this immediately brings to mind a familiar passage from Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now when we begin to think about man's thoughts, we, we know that our thoughts are limited. Limited by ignorance. We don't have an absolute knowledge of the past. Even men who are experts in history, well, they read it from a book that was written by another fallible man. We don't have an absolute knowledge of the present or of the future, so we can't think absolutely right about history or the future or the present. Our thoughts are short-sighted. Our goals and our plans are very short. Most of them end with us. They might bleed over a little into the lives of our children, but that's about it. Most of our thoughts are self-terminating. In other words, they stop at me. Every day when, I, when we wake up, we, we generally think, what about me? Here's what I'm doing today, and here's my schedule. And they, they come back to us, and if we're, we're really kind people, they might go out to another human being, but that's still just humanism. If we're really, really extra kind, they might go out to the trees and the environment and animals, but that still terminates on the creature. Our thoughts are temporal. That is, they come to us in time. Thought, thought, thought. As the clock ticks, we have thoughts. And they're very short-lived thoughts, easily crowded out. We can begin a sentence to end on a particular thought, to make a point, and halfway through that sentence we'll say, I'm not sure why I started what I'm trying to say here, or I forgot what I was going to say. It's just gone, like a vapor. But worst of all, our thoughts are unrighteous. Every single thought we have in some form is, is spoiled with a spore of remaining sin and corruption. God's thoughts are not like this. God's thoughts are constituted in omniscience, an absolute, perfect, complete knowledge of every single knowable fact, past, present, and future. Every reality and every potential reality, absolutely, as it is. God's thoughts are eternal, Infinite, they're not relegated to moments of time. God doesn't think a thought here and then now think another thought and then come upon another thought, but He is absolute, eternal, pure thought. All of His knowledge is all in one omniscient thought. His thoughts ultimately terminate on Himself, the supreme Creator. Even the thoughts that flow out of Himself in benevolence upon the creature, that, that makes a full circle back to himself and his own glory. And all of God's thoughts are perfectly righteous. There's no sin in any of the thoughts of God. No malice in the thoughts of God. There's no unjust or ill intent in any of the thoughts of God. Even his, his thoughts of condemnation and, and judgment are still perfectly righteous thoughts. The thoughts of a man can never be like God's thought in any absolute sense. Even if we simply meditate on the revealed truth of the Word of God, the most sanctified mind on the planet can never have a truly God-like thought because it's going to be gone just like that. So what about carnal minds? 
They can't, not only do they not think like God, the Bible says the carnal mind is enmity with God, anti-God, anti-Christ. So what can it say about a church when they have a good reputation in a pagan society? A good reputation for satisfying the carnal lusts of unregenerate men. Nobody in the, in the city despises this church. Nobody has any ill thoughts about this church. They get along with everybody. They don't have any of the pressures that we talked about in these other churches of, of compromise. They're, they're already compromised. The only way that this could be is if they had compromised. Compromised on the very essence of what it meant to be a church in the first place. Remember the Lord said in Luke 16, 15, What is exalted among men is an abomination to God. What we lift up, what we think is great, God hates. That's, a, that's an absolute principle. In our flesh, what we go after, what we are drawn to, what we think is great, God hates. He abominates. So that's His word of criticism. you got a great reputation. Strike one. You're dead. Strike two. You've not found your work, or your work is not complete in God's eyes. Strike three. Notice secondly, Christ's word of counsel. At the beginning of verse 2, he says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. When he says, Wake up, that's the very same thing that this same Christ said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Be watchful. It's not simply the state of not sleeping. It's not the difference between before your alarm and after your alarm. It's the demeanor of being alert, being vigilant. This church apparently had settled into a comfortable routine. So they had gotten complacent. They had been lulled to sleep by the praises of carnal men. It seems like they were probably under the impression, as many churches in our day are, that it's their job to put a smile on everybody's face. And as long as there's a smile, our job is good. We can set the cruise control and enjoy the ride. The well-speaking of their God-hating city was like a hose from the exhaust pipe circled around and stuck into the sanctuary. And they were all beginning to nod off. And so Christ comes with what we might picture as a verbal slap in the face, and he says, snap out of it. Wake up. Can you not see that you are dying? Now, were they dead or are they dying? Yes. Imagine a human body shutting down organ by organ. This organ dies, this organ dies, this organ dies. And, and while there might be some flicker of life, there might be a couple of organs still living, it's not going to be very long until there is no hope of resuscitation. The whole thing shuts down. So he's, he's trying to wake them up to see their, their situation. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains. Establish, fix what remains. The same word that was used when Christ set His face to Jerusalem. It's this word here. Imagine you're, you're setting a pole to build a barn. You dig the hole. You raise the pole. Perhaps you put some supports out from it to keep it plumb. And then you pour the concrete around it. That's what you're doing. You're strengthening that pole. You're not making the, the, the essential wood product stronger you're establishing or fixing that pole so that it won't move anywhere. That's the picture here. Some light flicker of life remains, but it's about to die. So, again, like the, the wood, it's not the essence of what remains that needs to change. He's not saying fix that. He's saying take that thing that does remain, that little bit, and resolutely, determinately fix it up, raise it, make it immovable. Notice that he calls them to action. Not idleness. He gives them something to do. You've got to act. You've got to resolve. And a lot of times we think that act is only physical. And very often it is. But there is act and resolution in our thinking and in our hearts that we have to do from time to time. So wake up, strengthen what remains. But what is it that remains? What is it that has to be strengthened? At the beginning of verse 3, he says, Remember then... What, there's our subject, what you received and heard, keep it and repent. So they had 
received something, they had heard something, and whatever they received and heard, they're now commanded to keep that and repent. Turn from their ways and endeavor after a renewed obedience. Whatever they had received and heard is the same thing that they need to remember and strengthen and keep. So he says remember, and we're sort of taken back into the history of a church that we don't know anything about. The book of Acts doesn't tell us about the, the planting of the church in Sardis. This is the only letter or epistle that we have to this church. So we have to ask ourselves, what might this church have received and heard that a little of it still remains that they need to strengthen? Again, I think Scripture interprets Scripture. So let's, let's just survey the New Testament. Let's ask ourselves, what, what happened in every church that carries the language of receiving and hearing? And I think that will help us understand where this church began as well. Romans 16, 17, Paul refers to the doctrine that they had been taught, they heard, received, sound doctrine. 1 Corinthians 1.4, the grace of God was given to you in Jesus Christ, so they received the grace of God in Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, when I came to you, here's, here's what happened on the establishment of that church, when I came to you, brothers, I did not proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He says, my message was... Were, and my words were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. They heard the gospel. They heard Christ crucified. They received a, a witness of, a, of the, the power of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. They heard the proclamation of the Lordship of Christ, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, they received a betrothal to Christ. In Galatians 1, 9, he talks about a gospel contrary to the one you received. So there was a gospel that they had received. Galatians 1, 11, that gospel was not man's gospel. Galatians 3, 1 and 2, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. They received the Spirit by hearing with faith. They heard the gospel, it was accompanied with faith, and they received the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 20 and 21, they learned Christ, they were taught in Him. Philippians 1, 6, a good work was begun in them that would be brought to completion. Colossians 1, of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. They heard it, which has come to you. It's bearing fruit, increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. They heard the word of truth. They heard the gospel. They received the effectual product, the fruit of Holy Spirit-empowered preaching. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. They heard the gospel. They received the Holy Spirit. They received conviction of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. We go back to Galatians. It was not man's gospel. What gospel was it? It was the gospel of God, about God and His by possession. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, you received the word of God. 1 Peter 1.12, the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news. 1 Peter 2.10, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. They heard the gospel, they received mercy. 2 Peter 1.3, divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, that is God, 2 Peter 1.4. He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that we might become partakers of the divine nature. Hebrews 12.28, we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see in a trend, every church, every group, every, every place where there was a church, every group that they could write to and say, we know there are some believers there, we can say with, I think, absolute certainty, anywhere there was a true church, 
Those people had heard the gospel of God and of His Christ crucified. That gospel had come to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. That preaching in the power of the Spirit was met with Spirit-wrought faith unto salvation. Those people were brought into the fellowship of God by the Spirit. They received the promises of God, became partakers of the divine nature, and were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son in every single place. They heard the gospel, they received the Spirit of God and life from the dead in every church. I don't have any reason to believe that Sardis was any different. If there were at, at ever saints in Sardis, this was the same model, the same method. So if they are dead and dying, what had they lost? What had they forgotten? What had they sacrificed on the altar of local reputation? The answer is they sacrificed the gospel of God. They lost the very thing that started the church. They traded the everlasting God of heaven and earth for a God that would fit very neatly onto a shelf with the other gods of their community. You just slide that one over a tad and that one over a tad and he'll fit right there. They traded God's thrice holy standard for, moral, for human morality and took for themselves a bar low enough for everybody to reach. They traded the exclusivity of Christ, the only mediator between God and men. They traded Him for the inclusive God that provides one of many ways to Himself. They traded the bloody cross of a wrath-bearing substitute for a nice example of kindness. They said, in effect, whatever sells, that's what we're selling. You come, you tell us what you like. Sure, we can, we can go with that. What do you like? Yeah, we can go with that too. And in sacrificing the gospel on the altar of reputation and acceptance, they had all but completely lost the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who gives life from the dead. Church, we have nothing to offer dead men if it is not life from the dead. That's what they need. And you can't promise them life from the dead if you can't promise them the spirit of life. And you can't promise them the spirit of life if you're not preaching to them the only message that He has promised to accompany with His Spirit and His power. It, there's only one way. Without the Holy Spirit, who is the, the life-giving Spirit of God, we might as well shut the doors. We're useless. We cannot accomplish our task. We can't finish the work God's given to us. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about us. If we lose the gospel, we're dead. And while the Spirit of God is promised to His true people, a church can compromise and sacrifice the gospel to the point where the Spirit of God says, I simply cannot abide in your midst. I can't be there. There might be some believers there, but I can't be in that, in that assembly. Why? Because His job is to exalt Christ. That's his job, to lift up Christ, to manifest Christ to people. And there's only one message that exalts Christ and that the Spirit has promised to bless unto that end. You lose that message, the Spirit says, I'm out, guys. I've got one job. If you're not going to be a part of that work, then, then count me out. So Christ says to this church, snap out of your drunken stupor. Get to work and be vigilant. The pillar of gospel proclamation is almost on the ground. He says, pick it up and redig the hole and put in supports and pour the concrete and fix that thing immovable. If you're not holding up the light of the gospel, if you're not preaching Christ crucified, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Do you really believe that? Nothing else matters. The soup kitchen might love you to death. The pregnancy care center might love you to death. Samaritan's Purse might love you to death. The school system might love you to death. The food pantry might love you. The cooperative program might love you. Local politicians might love you. The entire community might be glad you are there. Why? Because your pockets are deep. That's why they come, to your, they come and ask for money, but they won't come and sit to your, to your service or abide your preaching of the Word of God. 
They love to have you there, but if you've lost the gospel of Christ, lost it, or you've intentionally compromised it for reputation, or you have simply begun to assume it so that it's no longer a prominent or permanent fixture in the ministry, you're a dead church. You assume the gospel so that you think, well, I don't need to say that again this week. You're a dead church. Regardless of the number of cars in the parking lot, Christ says you're dead. So what, what's step number one? Go to Christ. It's the same in every letter. He begins in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He holds the ministry of the church in one hand, and he holds the sevenfold spirit of God in the other. And he says, Here I am. You want the spirit? You come to me. And this is very often what we do in, in remembering. As one man said, we, we retrace our steps back to Christ Himself. Perhaps it's searching and acknowledging what exactly it was that led to sacrificing the gospel. But you go back to that point where the gospel was dropped. That point where you thought it would be okay to assume or to sacrifice the gospel. You go back to that point and there you'll find Christ right where you left Him. We go back to Him. He says from the outset, I've got what you need. I've got the Spirit of life. And this is a great, a great biblical doctrine. All the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ. Colossians 1.19. That is, the full overflowing abundance of every perfection of grace is found in the man Christ Jesus. Now, why is that? Is it simply because He's God? No. It's because as the mediator, he has been given the Spirit of God without measure in his humanity. And because in light of his death and resurrection and ascension unto glory, he has earned the authority to dispense of that Spirit to his people as he wills. Acts 2.33 Christ has the Spirit. Remember that reference to the sevenfold Spirit goes back to Zechariah chapter 4. He said to me, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You don't build a church on reputation. You don't build a church by compromise. You don't build a church by operating in the arm of the flesh. You must have the spirit of God. If you don't have the spirit of God, you might have people getting together doing stuff, but you don't have a church. And who has the Spirit free for the taking? The risen, reigning Lord Jesus. We go to Him. He holds Himself out in every letter. If you're, if you're a compromised church or a suffering church, the answer is always go back to Him. When any individual or congregation abandons the gospel, they abandon Christ Himself. It's not methodology. It's not just a methodology. It's not just, well, that's the way you preach, but I do it this way. No. No, you abandon the gospel, you abandon Christ. Period. And when Christ has been left behind, the Spirit of Christ is not going to dwell in the midst of that people. If we don't get together to lift Him up, He's going to have no part in our worship. Without the Spirit of Christ, there is no life. The Spirit is the lifeline. He's the bond between the vine and the branches. You have to have Him. And so when the flame of true witness is flickering, we must have the ever-flowing, never-ceasing power of the everlasting, almighty Spirit of God, one for us through the work of Christ. Without that Spirit... We're dead. Christ builds His church through the power of the Spirit. Acts 1-4, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. What was that? It was the Spirit. Don't do anything on your own. Don't move. You sit here and wait. And when the Spirit comes, He says, you'll receive power when the Spirit comes, and you'll be my witnesses. But don't try to witness without the Spirit. We're told in Luke 11 to pray, to ask for the Spirit. What Father among you he withholds no good gift from those who walk in uprightness. What father among you, if, he, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Ask, ask, ask. He freely gives. He's not going to hold back His Spirit. 
Galatians 5 teaches us how to walk in and by the Spirit. Ephesians 4 says that grace has been given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He has the gift without measure. He gives to us from that, according to that measure, each one of us as He wills. We go to Him to get it. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we behold Christ, the work of the Spirit of the Lord is to move us from one degree of glory to another, looking to Christ. The answer is always the same. You abandon the gospel. You abandon Christ Himself. And when you abandon Christ, you forfeit the power of His Spirit. No spirit, no life. It doesn't matter how vibrant the worship is. It doesn't matter how many hooting and hollerings you have, how many flags are being waved, how many tongues are spoken. None of that matters if you do not have the Holy Spirit. Now, some people would equate all of that stuff with the Holy Spirit. That's because they've never read this book. They don't know anything about this book or this God or this Spirit. They just make it up. If I feel something, that's the Spirit. Show me in the text. It's not there. The Spirit is not a force. He's not an emotion. He's not a, a, a fog or a, a, a fuzzy feeling in your head. He is God, the Holy Spirit. Notice thirdly Christ's word of caution. Verse 3b, If you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, he's not talking about the final judgment because the second coming of Christ and the final judgment is not contingent upon our obedience or disobedience. Like the other churches, this was sort of a warning shot fired for that particular church. The city of Sardis had a history of being attacked and overthrown because they felt themselves to be impregnable. So they would go to sleep and people would sneak in and attack and overthrow them. So this is why that language is being used. Christ says, if you don't wake up, if you don't go back to the gospel, if you don't raise that flag, you're done. The community around you might go on for years loving Sardis Baptist Church. And the community around you and all of the ministries will continue to take all of the funds of Sardis Baptist Church to do everything that they want to do. But the Spirit of God is not going to be there. Christ will have no part in that. And notice, fourthly, Christ's word of consolation. Yet you still, you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his holy angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now notice how the ratio has changed. In Pergamum, there were some holding to the teaching of Balaam. In Thyatira, there, were, there was Jezebel and her children. But now in Sardis, those who had not compromised are in the minority. You have a few there who have not soiled their garments. Those who maintain their purity, unstained and uncompromised. And they will be clothed with white robes for all of eternity, the wedding garments that Christ gives to those who enter into the wedding feast. He says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Did he say that it's possible to have your name blotted out of the book of life? No. He's not implying that names can be blotted out. Those names have been written from the foundation of the world. He's stating the positive by way of negation. In other words, the one who remains faithful unto the end, the conqueror at death will be sealed in that state of eternal holiness. You'll enter into that state which Hebrews 12 refers to as the spirits of just men made perfect. Immutable in that state. Now, beyond all of that, he says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Can you even imagine that? The mouth that confounded the teachers of the law at 12 years old that spoke as never man spoke the mouth that said, Lazarus, come forth, and, and woman, go call your husband, and, and it is finished, that mouth. He's going to say your name before his Father and holy angels. The, the idea is 
that he's going to call all of their attention and he will proudly say, your name. And, and it's not going to be because someone slid a document across his desk and he's reading a list of names and he gets to your name in alphabetical order. No, you'll see his face and he'll have that look on his face like he's known you from the moment you were born, from all eternity. He'll look at you because he's been working all things according to the counsel of His will to bring you to Himself. He has saved you by His blood. He's sustained you in His power. He's going to look at you and you're going to know when you see that look that He, he recognizes and, and confesses, professes, I kept you. Here I am. Everything you've ever been through, I was there. And He's going to say your name. Before his father and his holy angels, he's not ashamed to call us brothers, but, but almost proudly. Look at this one. And our wedding garments are going to be garments that he gave to us. We won't have any glory of our own, but it'll be a reflection of his glory. It won't be a time when, when we are raised above our peers. It will, be, it, will, it will echo to his power and his saving strength and his keeping strength. But it's incomprehensible. We, we like to think... You know, imagine a famous person, you know, walking down the street and, and they saw you and they said, Hey! And you would think, Do you know me? That's odd that you know me. But this is, this is, this far surpasses even that thought. Who cares if a famous person knows us? The Lord of the universe is going to confess our name. Father, this one is mine. What, what, what more motivation do we have to have to keep ourselves unstained from the world, unsoiled, than that He would say your name? So what's our reputation? According to outsiders, what's the reputation of Covenant Bible Church? It would be very easy to say, well, you know, we, we, wrestle, we, we ruffle feathers, so nobody likes us. It doesn't matter what men say. It matters what God says. We know that there are people who would disagree with our practice and our doctrine who might have a bad, that they might would give us a bad reputation. And it would be very easy to take pride in that and to glory in what other men say. It doesn't matter what they say, whether they love us or what if everybody loved us. Woe to you when all men speak kindly and good words against or about you, say good things about you. That's not, we, we shouldn't care. Do we have a reputation of preaching Christ crucified? Do we have a reputation for being a holy, God-fearing people? Do we have the reputation for the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst? Could others testify to the ongoing production of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Take those questions to God and ask Him, Lord, are we alive or dead? I don't, I don't care what men say. I don't care what we do. I don't care how much we look like this church or that church or how much we confess along with this church and that guy and that guy. Lord, you tell us. Where are we? Where are we? Are we alive? Are we dead? Are we nodding off? Where are we? What's our reputation? According to God. And then lastly, we need to remember from this that we're not finished. Our Work as a church is incomplete until our bodies are in the ground. There's more to be done. We cannot coast. We cannot rest because we're known among our peers as a Reformed church. Because it would be very easy to glory in that. You know, people around here, you know, they, you know, there are people here and people there who would love to have a church like ours. And, they, and this is true. They, they look upon what we do and they, they wish that they had that. And it would be very easy to say, huh, we got it. And kick back the recliner and coast. And we cannot. We cannot rest because we know facts about doctrine and history. As families and as individuals... You cannot rest because you finally found a church that suits you. In our society, it's almost like that is the chief aim 
of Christians. We're just, I'm just trying to find a good church. We finally fit that, find that church where we're, we're being fed the Word and we're, things are ordered the way the Scriptures lay out for us. And we think, oh, I'm there. I accomplished it. No, you just got in the car. You just started. We just got here. The work has just begun. Our having been gathered into an assembly is the beginning. Now we begin to fulfill what Christ has called us to do. If we truly have the Spirit of Christ in our midst, there will be ever-increasing growth in all of the manifold graces found in Christ Himself. It's not about emotions. It's not about how the song went or how many times we sang it. It's about Christ Himself being formed in us so that when we walk out the door, regardless of what we say, we look like Him. And then when we start talking, we talk like Him. And when we're not saying and we're not walking, we're just thinking all alone, we think like Him. We love what He loves and hates what He hates. That's the work of the Spirit. That's what He produces. It's life. That's just why... It's the sight of God. It's only in the sight of God that the reputation can matter because we are so good at tricking and, and, and deceiving men. We can put on a show that men can see. God says, no, you get alone in a dark room where there's nobody else. You're not saying, you're not talking, you're all by yourself. Now do you look like Christ? That's what matters. And if that's what we desire, which I pray that most of us would, would say, that's what I want, that's what I'm after then you must seek the Spirit always. Hold to what you received and what you heard. It's the gospel. Go back to the gospel. Why? Because it sets forth God. It sets forth Christ. And as we meditate on God and Christ, God and Christ and the cross, and God and Christ and the cross and the resurrection, for our whole lives we will at some point begin to think, when we're all alone, we'll begin to, to actually manifest the real fruit of the Spirit. That's how we grow. You go back there. And we do not compromise. And what, what I mean by compromise and holding to the gospel, this is not, it's not like when we get in and we shut the door and we open our confession and say, see, we've got the gospel. See? No, I'm talking about open, public regular proclamation of the biblical gospel, we do not compromise that for anyone, for any ministry, for any association, for any reputation, for any supposed growth. We don't. Keep your money, keep your name, keep your logo. We, we're not giving this up for any reason. And you do that and you strengthen that torch of the light of the gospel and you fix it immovable and you leave it there until you're in the ground. That's what, that's what we have before us. Most of us are young. We've got a long time. It's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be hard. If, if we really mean it. If we really mean to do it, it's going to be hard. There, there are ways we can get around it being difficult. And that is compromise. Just give in. Be, be satisfied with walking in the door and saying, here's the confession. Here's what we believe. Rather than an open, public statement of the truth and what we believe. We often, we're afraid to pray for open doors and opportunities. Because we are so fearful. When you look at Christ... If you read the Gospels, you can't ever imagine a time when he was afraid. Ever. Ever. Not one conversation do we ever get the hint that he was somewhat timid about what was happening. Ever. Uh, even in the face of a storm. You know, they're, they're crying out, we're going to die. Where's your faith? Hush. Be still. He, he was bold. In every situation, in every every different group that he interacted with, he was bold. He knew exactly what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and he said it every time. Never fearful. Never fearful. Again, we, we look at that and we say, well, yeah, but he was God, so no. In the power of the Spirit, he was bold. And he spoke. He was filled with the Spirit and he spoke. We see that with the apostles. They were filled with the Spirit. They spoke. 
So we pray, very often we pray, Lord, open doors, but we, for, we, we don't ask for the Spirit and for boldness. And so we think that the timidity that we have in our, in our, when we're alone, our fearfulness, that that is what we're going to carry into the door that He opens. No, if you pray for the door to open and for the Spirit's power, when He gives it, you're not afraid. But see, we get in this mindset that it's always only like I am right now. The point that you're praying, the re what you're asking for in the, in the power of the Spirit is that you would not be like you are right now when that moment comes. So when you ask for it, He gives it, and you're not that way. But again, that's, that's faith. That's praying in faith. Again, a lot of times we don't pray in faith. Lord, give me an opportunity. But in the back of my mind, I kind of hope you don't give me an opportunity because I don't really believe that you can give me that grace of boldness like my Lord. You pray in faith. Lord, you gave him boldness. Look how he acted. Look how my Lord acted. Should I not be like my master? Then give me that grace. Give me that spirit. And when the moment comes, you'll speak. And you might look back up later and say, I don't know where that came from. I'm not like that naturally. That's what you're praying for. You're, you're praying for the very thing that's going to make you not think the way you're thinking before you're praying when the time comes. And we have strength to do that. I said we have, we have a lot of work before us. Our, our work's not finished. And we have that strength to endure because our Lord manifested that endurance unto the end. To the completion of His work, in the power of the Spirit, even to death of the cross. He did it. And then He won for us that Spirit. He endured. We think, how, how could a man do that? Endure... The, the beating and then carrying the cross and then hang there. And you ha it had to be torturous. We imagine uh, the, the, the martyrs enduring the flame. How do they do it? It had to be. We can't even imagine enduring it. How can it be? The Spirit does it. He strengthens. He sustains. And that Spirit, He gives to us. He promises to give. He, he won that for us. To, to not pray for it. In faith, to not ask for it, and then to not live in the strength and power of that Spirit that, that He's won for us, to not do that is to say, Christ, I know you've done that work. I've got my ticket for heaven, and I don't need anything else. And that's, that's an abomination upon His work. He won that same Spirit for us on the cross. So now we turn our thoughts to that cross, that tree on which our Savior died. Again, how could he endure it? In the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit of God. We come to the Lord's table. What is it? It's a means of grace. It is a means by which the Spirit of God gives us the grace won for us. So we turn our attention to the cross, consider the table, consider that power, and ask for that grace, and then we'll eat together with him.